You're listening to Irish Radio Canada's Home and Abroad, and uh, we always try to join the dots of the Irish diaspora around the world. And a number of, some time back, we talked about the Fenian invasion of Canada. And we've talked about other things where the Irish have been somewhat obstreperous. And, of course, the Fenian invasion of Canada happened after the American Civil War, and the Irish had been on both sides of that. But uh, today we're going to talk with Dr. Michael Hogan, and he lives in uh, Colonia Provincia, Guadalajara in Mexico, uh, where his wife, Lucinda Mayo, uh, the international known fabric uh, uh, artist, is there. Born in Newport, Rhode Island in 1943, is the author of 18 books, including a collection of short stories, six books of poetry, collected essays on teaching in Latin America, a novel and a history of the Irish Battalion in Mexico, which formed the basis of an MGM movie starring Tom Berenger. Uh, so we're going to talk about uh, with Michael and Michael. Welcome. Thanks a million for coming along. Thank you, Austin. Good to be I want to, to talk particularly about three of your books, and that is Women of the Irish Rising, <laughs> A People's History, Molly Malone and the San Patricios, and the Irish Soldiers of Mexico. Um, three interesting topics for a guy from Rhode Island uh, living in Mexico, because, of course, the name gives it away anyway. Michael Hogan couldn't but be Irish. <laughs> Thank you, Austin. Well, my grandfather uh, on my mother's side was from County Kerry, Cahersavine, and was very much involved in the in the gun running operations uh, back in 1916. And uh, my grandmother died that same year. Um, and he uh, immigrated first to Canada and then to the United States, uh, you know, where he settled, worked for the railroad, and raised three daughters all by himself. He was a widow all his life. Um, from his 30s into his 80s. And he always used to talk about the rising and, and uh, you know, his, his part in it and the women who were very, very brave during that period and, and how, how, how valuable they were to the cause. <clears throat> and and in uh, the, the 80s and the 90s, I took my daughter uh, over to Ireland and uh, her name is Melissa. And, uh, you know, I, I was trying to tell her about the one. There were no statues. There were no memorials to any of these women. And she goes, well, what happened to the women? And, you know, and I said, well, that's that's a story that probably still needs to be written. I mean, there's bits and pieces, but, you know, we don't know. We don't know enough. And um, anyway, uh, she grew up, um, you know, got a degree from the University of Colorado. But in her junior year, she... She did her study abroad at Trinity University. And one of the things she did for her, uh, for her leaving project was to interview women on both sides of the, uh, of the conflict, which was then fairly rampant in the 90s, um, you know, between the, uh, the Protestants and the Catholics in the North. And she interviewed families on both sides, especially the women, you know, the wives and the mothers. And then she wrote a proposal. Uh, in a research paper about how uh, if the women could come together, they could end the conflict. And, and Bill Clinton, who had then retired from, from the presidency and was operating a law firm in New York, was invited to you know, participate in the peace talks, the Good Friday talks, they were called. And he invited Melissa to join him. So you know, this, this kind of brought things full circle. You know, so the book is kind of a tribute to her, my, my daughter, 
as well as to my grandfather, Cornelius McGillicuddy. Um, and uh, one of the things I discovered was that these women uh, who, who participated in the in the rising, over 200 of them, um, were of all different classes. Uh, Constance Markovich, for example, uh, was a wealthy landowner um, married to a Polish count, you know, and she sold her jewels to buy, you know, to buy weapons, and then, uh, you know, took over a Boy Scout troop and trained them to be, uh, trained them to be warriors. Um, and she was also a combatant, uh, you know, combat leader. Uh, you know, so we, so we think of these women, and, oh, well, they probably just carried messages or cooked the meals for the men or worked as nurses. Well, they did that some, but, uh, you know, also several toted, you know, automatic rifles. And, uh, one woman, uh, her name is, uh, Margaret Skinnider. She was raised in, in, in uh, Scotland, but in a, uh, in a, uh, in a, uh, in an Irish, uh, you know, immigrant kind of slum. And grew up and, um, and got a degree and became a mathematics teacher. And she also joined a women's group, which was to defend, the purpose was to defend the British against the German invasion. If, you know, if World War II became a reality. But in the process, she learned how to plant bombs. She learned how to, uh, you know, handle fuses. She learned how to use a rifle. And, uh, when 1916 came along, she thought, well, I think my fight is not against, you know, the Germans. I think my fight is against the British Empire. And she went back to Ireland and became a combatant as well. So really interesting, uh, you know, stories about women. And I discovered these in the military archives in Dublin. Uh, They were from, uh, uh, from 1948, they began recording uh, some of the uh, statements of these women who participated because they were getting older. They were in their 70s and 80s. And they thought, well, you know, we better get a few of them on tape before they die. And the, uh, you know, the recordings were transcribed and, uh, and uh, I was able to access them online, which was wonderful. Now, the, the recordings like that, one of the things I, I remember growing up and there was this, um, we were aware of common Amman. Uh-huh. Was, and and I guess Common Man was the movement of the Irish women that were involved, and it was founded in April 1914. Um, but I guess, as is the case in North America, in Canada, in Mexico, UK, everywhere, women oftentimes have been written out of history, even though they're an integral part of it. That's true. You know, one of the, one of the interesting things that happened with the Irish uh, rising was that the initial uh, leaders, for example, James Connolly, uh, the initial uh, uh, you know, uh, group that led the uh, rising were, were for the most part, uh, very liberal, very open-minded. Uh, James Connolly himself was not only a socialist, but he was also a feminist. But of course, you know, all the leaders were killed uh, as a result of, uh, you know, the British reprisals. And, and, and the ones that took their place tended to be conservatives. And, uh, one in particular, Eamon de Valera, uh, was, was very much tied in with, uh, with the local Catholic bishop. He lived mm-hmm. on the same street as he did. He went to the school that the bishop ran. And when it came time to, uh, to write the new constitution, well, the bishop had him in his back pocket. 
So, so uh, you know, the idea that women were made to stay in the home and, and that, the, you know, there should be no contraception, no birth control, no divorce, et cetera, et cetera, you know, became a part of the Constitution. So all these all these rights that these women were expecting because they thought uh, that nationalism and feminism would go hand in hand for equal rights were completely shattered uh, after the after the rising, which is you know very very sad. So in the book uh, Women of the Ar- uh, Rising of the Irish Rising: A People's History, you're saying it's the story of women. Um, so. Do you, in a way, um, is it telling individual stories? Like we mentioned Constance Markovich and uh, there were others like that. So have you identified some individuals and told their stories? Yes, Austin. What I do is I try to weave in these these uh, these individual stories in a kind of a seamless narrative, which also follows the rising itself. Okay. You know, so, you know, so, so in the years before the rising, it talks about the you know, the labor movement and how the women ran the soup, the soup kitchens in those days. Uh, it talks about um, young girls who uh, who at the town hall would be doing Irish dancing, but at the same time hearing John, James Connolly's speeches and uh, grew up in that in that atmosphere, uh, you know, Independence Hall and so on. So I grew up in that atmosphere of, of seeing the connection between uh, nationalism and feminism you know, between nationalism and, and uh, human rights in general. And I suppose one of the things I've heard, and it was a phrase I heard many years ago, and it's things in the context of the times, and that's the big challenge we always have, is when we apply the lens of today to 100 years ago, it's not the same lens. Mm-hmm. And we often do not appreciate the societal challenges that somebody like Constance Markovich or some of those would have had in establishing their their individual independence. Yeah, yeah, you know exactly. And and uh, one of the things that's remarkable, uh, I think, you know, not only talk about the women, but talking about people like James Connolly. Um, how much how much courage does it take? You not only to be a warrior and a leader, but to go against the. Uh, you know the traditions of, you know of the time uh, he was the one that said yes let's let's have these uh, women from Kandama. let's have them in the uh, in the um, in the uh, citizens army uh, whereas most most people would say no and in fact Eamon de Valera didn't want any women <laughs> you know in his in his group um, so you know to even take the chance that uh, that these women would be combat ready and that they could be trustworthy. Um, you know, it was something that most men really did not appreciate, but James Conley, you know, did have that, that uh, leadership quality. And, uh, and uh, he convinced uh, 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 Peter Pierce and others that, that they should follow suit. The other thing I suppose to be cognizant of is we all know that the leaders were taken to Kilmainham jail and they were executed. But I noticed uh, like, that there were a number of women who died, uh, either at that, that there was a Josephine McGowan died as a result of a beating by police mm-hmm. in September 1918. And uh, there was a 19-year-old Margaret Kyo. She was killed in 1921 um, when she was trying to remove some arms from her house. And these kind of things, as I said, like they're little vignettes of history that have been totally overlooked. Yeah. 
you know, and also, you know, and also the bloodshed, uh, from, from, uh, civilians, many, uh, you know, young children were also killed by British soldiers who, who like, it, you know, indiscriminately fired into houses and so on. Yeah, I know I interviewed Joe Duffy. Um, he wrote a wonderful book on the children of the revolution. And I think it was something like 42 or 43 young children had died during the, over the period of the 1916 rising. Yeah, we forget that. You, you know, we watch, you know, as you say, there are differences in time and so on and so forth, but there are also parallels with the present time. You know, I look at the pictures of Ukraine, you know, and people say, you know, look at that in horror and they say, well, what kind of monster would be, you know, destroying the uh, buildings and the apartments and the infrastructure of the city? Well, Dublin in 1916 was a beautiful city. Mm-hmm. Its architecture was famous, mm-hmm. you know. And, uh, you know, investments for hundreds of years had gone into building that, you know, the, you know, the structure of downtown Dublin. And, and no one believed that the British would use artillery <laughs> I know. against soldiers armed only with rifles and would destroy their own buildings. Yeah. You know, but they yeah. did, you know, yeah. uh, it, it was incredible. But, but in those days, of course, they didn't have the kind of, you know, the kind of immediate news that would that would arouse the public outrage. And again, the public outrage, as we all know, is dependent on the perception that is presented. Exactly. So, exactly. Um, so you mentioned when you when you went with your daughter and you go around and you couldn't find any statues to any women, but there is one statue to a woman that's to Molly Malone. Right. She wheels it with a barrel. <laughs> so, so Molly Malone and the San Patricios. <laughs> Tell me what, what what are we looking at here? Well, you know, we we when we were growing up, and my mom said, "Well, you know, we've got a you know this is the other side of the family, the Hogan side. You know, we've got a you know a relative that actually fought in Mexico." I was, I was talking to my mother about maybe working in Latin America, and she said, "Well, you know, there's been Hogans down there before." I said, "Really?" She goes, "Yeah, in the 1800s." So I, I, you know, I went to Mexico City and I saw a plaque and it said, uh, you know, in Spanish, in honor of the soldiers from Ireland who had fought for the independence of Mexico. And it listed a number of names, uh, o- O'Reilly and Sullivan and O'Keefe and Hogan. And this Roger Hogan was evidently a great, great, great uncle of mine. So, you know, at some point I said, well, if I go back to Mexico, I think I'll research that and find out more. But in the meantime, I, I've gone to various places. I've gone to, uh, you know, the archives in, in the U.S. And I asked, I asked, uh, you know, what do you know about this Irish battalion that fought in Mexico? Oh, that's just Mexican propaganda. Never such a, never such a group. You know, and, and I just kind of forgot it for a while. And then in 1990, I was offered a position in Mexico to run the the, the English uh, department at, at the uh, the American School Foundation. So it was a two-year contract. Well, I'm still there now after all these years. But uh, I thought, well, in the summers or during breaks, I think I'll go back to, you know, some of the sites of the Mexican War and see if I can find out more information. And... Uh, uh, and I thought I'd write a novel about it. And my idea for the novel was this Irish immigrant comes over to the, to the U.S. He finds out that uh, 
that, you know, he can't get a job anywhere because in those days, you know, that over a million Irish, uh, you know, landed on the shores of the United States in the 1840s. Um, and, and, and they were kept in slums in Boston and New York. Uh, the death rate of Irish children was six times the rate of, of, uh, Anglo-Saxon children. So it was, you know, very, very difficult to, you know, to survive. So he joined the army, this, this character of mine. And uh, discovers when he he's on his way to Mexico that he has an Anglo-Saxon army poised to invade a Catholic country, and he deserts and joins the Mexicans. So that was my idea. But as I got a couple of chapters in, I thought, well, I don't really know enough about this history to write a good novel. So I think what I'll do is I'll, I'll just spend some time and do some research. And then I realized, oh, my God, I don't know enough Spanish to read the original documents, and especially in 19th century Spanish. So I went back to the university, and I studied, you know, Mexican history and Spanish at the university, and then a professor there convinced me to go ahead and get my degree. So I ultimately got, you know, a degree in Latin American studies, a, a doctorate, and part of my thesis was The Irish Soldiers of Mexico. And uh, you know, that's the book that actually came out before Molly Malone. And that book recounts the history. And when you mentioned the, in that context as well, of course, the Chieftains put out a wonderful album, which chronicles some of this also. Exactly. Well, that, you know, my book was the inspiration. Uh, as a matter of fact, when, when they got their award for their contributions to uh, Irish culture, it was at the uh, it was at the uh, banquet for the grito, the Mexican grito in, in September. I can't remember the year, probably two thousand eight or something. Um, uh, but uh, when, when they accepted the award, they said, uh, and, "And thanks primarily to Michael Hogan's book, you know, we we uh, we uh, got this history." So I was I was really delighted because I was invited to uh, go to Dublin for that event with the Irish ambassador. And again, I suppose what that's illustrative of, as I said at the beginning, you know how globally the Irish have participated in so much in the development of. In Argentina, it was the navy, as I as I recall. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, they went to Spain and were in Gallipoli, all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the funny part of it as well is that when you grow up in Ireland, you really have no appreciation of this aspect of Irish history. Yeah. And I don't think it's ever really been taught of what, like I said, well, I didn't have an interest in history when I was at school anyway. But, but even then, what we were taught was a very narrow history that nearly revolved around a, a weekend in Easter 1916. Mm-hmm. There was, and, well, there was the penal laws and those things before that. But it was very narrow, and the global influence of the Irish, I don't think, was ever really portrayed. Yeah. No, I, I was talking with a you know, real good friend of mine who... who um, who's the Irish distributor of the book. And he said he's gone around to schools with the book and teachers have told him, oh my God, we didn't know, you know, one half of this. And, and uh, one of the, 
you know, one of the reasons I wrote in the first place was not because of Irish people, but it was because of, of people who claim Irish heritage. There are 35 million of us in, in North America, or, or, or the Americas, let's say. That includes, uh, you know, Argentina and Mexico, Canada and the United States. You know, two million alone in Canada. But if you ask the average student, and I had several, I had Kellys in my class in Mexico, for example, who were third generation or fourth generation uh, Irish. And I said, what do you know about Irish history? <laughs> Absolutely nothing, really, you know. And uh, then when I was talking to Fiacra Keel, uh, who's my friend in in, uh, in, uh, in Ireland, he said, well, I didn't know that much about it. He said, I knew Constant Makovich, of course, but he said, I, I knew very other, you know, I knew a few other women that, that participated. And he said, I had no idea that after the rising, some of these women went to the States. And that's how we were so successful in ultimately getting our independence. For example, uh, James Connolly's daughter, Nora, <clears throat> uh, she went to the States after her her, her father was murdered by by the British. Uh, you know, uh, he was he was brought out in a chair and they killed him in jail. He'd already mm-hmm. been shot twice. He had gangrene. He was dying anyway. Mm-hmm. They tied him to a chair and then and then put him in front of the firing squad. It, it, it was so it was so stressful that even a British soldier you know vomited when he <laughs> when he finished doing the doing the job. But anyway, she went to the states and described this this whole process to a crowd in in. Uh, in South Boston, and, and she raised over a hundred thousand dollars, which which it was able to uh, uh, arm the 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 the, uh, the resistance. And not only that, but it changed public opinion. You know, public opinion at that time, especially you know during World War One, was on the side of the British. But after hearing uh, after hearing a uh, young young Nora Connolly, a lot of people began shaking their heads and said, "Well, I don't know. You know, we've heard many, many pretty sorry things about this British Empire, not only in in Ireland now, but also we heard about it in, in, in South Africa during the Boer War. They did some pretty horrible things, concentration camps and so on. And maybe you know we better rethink our relationship with Great Britain and and the United States ultimately." You know, after the after the uh, after the Wilson administration left, uh, ultimately became much more friendly to the Irish cause. The perception of the Irish you mentioned was far from good before, um, back at that time, and I've read a number of books relating to how they were treated, and particularly in around Boston, um, some of the the stories there. Um, of course. The British had a communications machine that was effectively defining the narrative globally. Exactly. And that you didn't call it a propaganda machine, but I, I, I was avoiding that work. <laughs> but but they had they had the credibility. Yeah. And as a result, they had the doors. They were able to get access to the leaders of other countries, and they were the ones that were effectively being believed. So anything like that is an uphill battle because, yeah. you know, as you know and I know, when the Irish arrived in, in uh, the States, uh, and the same in London even, it was a case of no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Exactly. 
you know, and, and if you don't have access to the media, then the story doesn't get told, you know, and, and that was, that was one of the biggest problems. I remember growing up, uh, you know, I went to a Catholic school, of course, but we were, uh, we were a, a, a tight knit, uh, minority. You know, it was the Irish neighborhood. It was the fifth ward. And that's where the Irish people live. And the third war, that's where the black people live. And, you know, there's another war, that's where the Italian people live. We were our own little world. And, um, I remember when John F. Kennedy was running for office, the whole, the whole discussion was, well, is he going to be loyal to the Constitution or is he going to be loyal to the Pope in Rome? You know, can we really trust him to lead a democracy? And, and my first teaching job was in South Carolina. And I remember going home with the principal to, to, to have dinner at his house one night. And his wife was, was very, uh, you know, and my wife was young. She was just in her, in her 20s. Uh, I guess I was in my 20s too. I, I was probably 23. She was like 20. And, um, you know, the, uh, the wife of the principal kept, kept looking at her and shaking her head. And, and, uh, finally I, I said, what's wrong? And, and, and the husband said, shh. And she says, no, no, I'm going to say it. I'm, I, I can't stand this. I'm going to say it. How can you possibly, you know, be a Catholic and, 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 and uh, you know, do that to your wife? And I went, what? Do what? She says, well, it's a well-known fact, you know, that you Catholics have to take the woman to the priest first and let him have his way with her. I said, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> I've never heard of such a thing in my life. So there were all these myths and, 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 and stories surrounding you know, the Catholic Catholic ritual, you know. And of course, we did it in another language. They didn't like that either. <laughs> no. Um, when you mention about, and uh, we talk about the having access to the media. Of course, the great thing about Irish history has been that it has come down to us through song. And I always remember that that was how, in many ways, history survives better when it is put to music and song and becomes part of folklore than can often have. And it reaches people at a much more organic and ubiquitous level than the written word and that the Irish had the gift of telling the story in that way. Exactly, exactly. You know, one of the songs I I loved and I heard very early on was... uh, 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 was the wearing of the green, which was describes the uh, 1798 rising. And uh, I met with Napatandi and he took me by the hand. He says, how is dear old Ireland and how does she stand? <clears throat> well, she's the most distressful country that I've ever seen for the hanging men and women now for the wearing of the green. You know, and I, I learned that song very young, probably eight or nine years old. Mm-hmm. Michael, we're going to wrap up. I want to give people the coordinates. If they would like to find out more about you, you have a website. Yeah, it's a, it's a, a Dr. Michael Hogan, all one word, uh, dot com. And they can get links there if they would like to get their hands on any of your books. Yep, and all my books are available in Canada on Amazon uh, Canada. And uh, they're available on, for Kindle, they're available in soft copy as well as hard copies? Both. Uh-huh. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Have you any trips planned to Ireland in the foreseeable future? Well, I hope so. I, I hope to go visit my friend, uh, Afia Krakio. He's He's been a good friend over these years. And, uh, you know, he once was here teaching. 
and uh, now he's now he's in Ireland uh, working with the immigrant groups, and including uh, Ukrainians. So uh, you know, a fine young man, and I'd I'd like to visit him and his wife <laughs> soon. It's been it's been three years, and we've been doing Zoom talks, you know. But it, right. that gets old after a while. And uh, you want to head to Karsavine, of course. Oh yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> you know, and I'd like to visit the north. I haven't I haven't really done that. My daughter's been there, but I right. haven't really visited the north at all. Yeah, Michael uh, Michael Hogan. It's been a real honour. Real honour meeting with you and chatting with you, and uh, hopefully you do get to Carsevine, and hopefully you get up to the north. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, uh, well, I don't know if you'll need a visa to get into the north now, but <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, I don't know they're getting rid of the prime minister, so things might change. <laughs> things might change. <laughs> Michael, thanks a million. Thank you, Austin. <laughs>